Hello, everybody. You are listening to Action Research Global Conversations. My name is Linnea Rademacher, and I am the chair of the Action Research Special Interest Group of the American Educational Research Association for 2020 through 2022. In this podcast, we hope to feature those who are passionate about action research, and we hope to include action researchers from around the globe. Thanks for listening. Today's guests, very excited, are my colleagues in podcasting, Joe Levitin, Adam Stiglitz, Shika Diwakar, and Vanessa Gold, the AR podcast team, which they call the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. The podcast, according to their notes on their podcast page, is intended mostly for those interested in research and social change, and tackles tricky issues in the action research process like reflexivity, collaboration, rigor, and iteration through discussions with established and emerging action researchers. Joe is an assistant professor and graduate program director in the Department of Integrated Studies in Education at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. Joe has published studies on collaborative work in education, culturally responsive leadership, and educational policy and curriculum development. He's also the co-founder and co-director of the Payata Community Education Center, which is a learning space in the Peruvian highlands that uses participatory collaborative approaches to address community-identified learning goals. Adam is a doctoral candidate in the Educational Leadership Evaluation and Organizational Development Program at the University of Louisville and director of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the Peruvian Highlands. Vanessa is a doctoral student in the Department of Integrated Studies in Education at McGill University studying pedagogical change processes in secondary schools, and Shika is a doctoral student in the Department of Integrated Studies in Education at McGill University, studying experiences of Dalit women in higher education institutions in India. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today. This is our second podcast together. We did one together for the AR podcast earlier in January, and now we are doing a second one that will appear on the AR SIG podcast, Action Research Global Conversation. So I'm very happy to have you all here today. I'm going to start with Joe because Joe had some interesting references in his signature that I downloaded and looked at pertaining to his work in Peru and with indigenous communities. And then we'll go from there and we'll bounce off from there about collaborative work, practitioner research, school curriculum, and all of the things that you want to talk about today. But particularly, I noted some really interesting material in Joe's and Kayla Johnson's article, Salir Adelante, Collaboratively Developing Culturally Grounded Curriculum with Marginalized Communities. And this spoke to me because I have a couple of students doing work in culturally responsive teaching and culturally responsive pedagogy. And I was struck by a couple of things and I'll dovetail my two questions into one. You have a statement early on on page 197 that one of the most salient findings from the project was the complexity and messiness of interpreting community members' ideas into curricular choices. And I made a note of that. And as I read further on, into your findings, I was really struck by the discussion around language and the understanding, and you, you presented it really well, that language is very both culturally based and culturally representative, which I think is so important 
for people to understand, we often think of language as something static. You learn a language, it's this, this word is this, but it never is that way. Even a word that is the same in English to other English speaking peoples will have different meanings. And you brought that out really well with the ideas and concepts of success and winning. And so I wanted you to talk about what that means in terms of both culturally responsive teaching and pedagogy and collaborative research, because I think it has significance that you talked about in that way. Thanks for that question. It's a really challenging and subtle aspect of doing research, but I think it's one that's really important. But the way in which, and this is something that, you know, having an undergraduate degree in philosophy, it was something that fascinated me as an undergrad, was how different, the same word can mean different things to different people. And that can happen with people from the same cultural context, but it's also more likely to happen when people come from very different cultural contexts. So when we think about uh, language like Spanish or English or Quechua, and we think about how the kind of subconscious or semi-unconscious connotations of language. So I might see, just as an example, a word like cool to be a term for my generation and maybe not quite as uh, up to date as some young people might think of it. And so the connotation to cool for me is, oh, that's like something that's nice and and good and and whatever. And they might see it as something else in the younger generation. The same thing can be said when we're talking about what the students are saying in this particular um, article. I was working collaboratively with uh, 14 students who were from Quechua speaking communities in the Peruvian Andes. So their connotations and the words that they use in Spanish, because Spanish was their second language, like it was my second language, are also going to be different. And so they're going to have different cultural meanings related to some of these terms. And that means that there's a really wide kind of gap between what we may think we know and what we're saying and what the other person may be saying, what they think they know. And so as researchers, it's really important to be sensitive to that. And it's really important to recognize that messiness so that we can better understand each other. I think that is crucial for any collaborative work. I think it's particularly crucial for us who are working in cultural contexts that may be different than where we grew up. But I think it's equally important for people who grew up, you know, in the same context where they're doing research. When we start to do this collaborative work, we are going towards some kind of vision to future, working together to try to come to some kind of consensus about a vision to future And when we're talking, that's the best way for us to try to build this vision together. But if we are misunderstanding what each other are saying, so in the example in this article, some of the students were saying ganadora, which means a winner, somebody who's winning. But also in Spanish, it means somebody who's earning a salary, somebody who is providing for their family. So it has these multiple layers of meaning behind it. And so when we talk about what the students are saying for someone like me thinking about ganadora i was thinking oh so they just want to be like the winners or they want to be the people who like come out on top and they want to just be you know somebody like that but it could also mean that they're providing for their family or they're providing for their community so that's really what i noticed with the students is that that's how they use that term so if i had stuck myself in just this one position where like okay they want to be winners so let's just make sure that they learn the rules of the game of public school education they're going to be able to graduate, they're going to go to higher education, they're going to make a lot of money, that might not have actually been what they were meaning. So our vision of the future would have been very different if I had misinterpreted what they were saying. 
And that's the messiness that I'm talking about in that article and the complexity of language. So getting on the same page, at least in this example, is by providing different interpretations of what they're saying. So we did three different iterative rounds of dialogue with the students to see what they actually meant and gave them a few different examples of what we thought they meant so that they could pick one that was closer to what they meant. And then we could iteratively get more focused into what that shared vision was going to be. And, and that was really messy too, because then once you start to understand each other, you also recognize that some of your values may be in conflict or intention, and that adds to the messiness too. So you have to be able to think collaboratively and recognize when those values are becoming kind of part of the collective vision. But that takes a lot of negotiation. That takes a lot of self-reflection and thoughtfulness about what of these values can I give up so that the community can get the values together? What are the values that, you know, when the students disagree or when, you know, elders and students disagree about what that future is, that's very messy too. So what are those values and how do they transform and how do we build collaborative visions together? So that's a little bit of what I was talking about. That was great. I think it has also great implications for practitioner research in general, because generally we are researching with you can call it collaborative action research, you can call it participatory action research, but we're researching with. And so people have different perceptions and conceptions of what needs to be done, what needs to be researched, what results mean in terms of the implications for them and their community and their setting. And all of this has to be negotiated and discussed. And you talked about that power balance. You have to acknowledge that there is, as you as a white man in that room, there is a power balance there coming into a community. And as much as you work to minimize that, and I've been in the same place, not with indigenous communities, but between me as a professor and working with teachers, there is a power balance. You know, whether I want to acknowledge it or not, the teachers I've worked with see me as a professional, see me as this expert. And it's not that I don't want to be an expert, but it's to acknowledge the value of everyone's perceptions and everyone's knowledge in those settings. So I think that's really important. And I'd like to hear everybody, you know, talk about this in terms of what they're doing a little bit and uh, what that means to them. I think it's a real key component of practitioner research. Yeah, absolutely. I think figuring out how to understand and work with power in a way that's just and equitable and understand where you come from and understand how other people perceive you. Those are really key facets to practitioner research to build that collaborative shared vision of moving forward and also being able to navigate some of that messiness because to collaborate you don't all need to agree exactly on everything but you need to agree enough for everybody to move forward and you need to make sure that everybody has enough of a voice that they feel heard and i don't want to use the term enough of a voice but enough power to be able to maneuver the discussion in ways that are really important to them adam your work in peru with the andean alliance for sustainable development and that you are the director of how do you see these things playing out well, it's really at the core of our organizational philosophy is that the work that we do when we partner with communities is led by those in which we work with. Perhaps, yeah, we have ideas in the direction in which certain projects should go or the way that they should be designed. But at the end of the day, we do work in the realm of social change. And I think for us, as it relates to the ways in which we partner with local communities, and community members at the core of all of it is being able to create dialogue so that you know honest perspectives 
are rising to the surface so that then we can then collaborate and work together and us as an organization can fill gaps in a way that perhaps we can and maybe the people that we're, we're working with can't. It's, it's through that sort of dialogue that you know, we might be able to create and inform meaningful collaboration, not only with the community, but also maybe with the local government, where if community representatives don't feel that safe space where they can go and express their needs directly with, say, the mayor, well, our organization has been here long enough that, you know, we do feel comfortable going in and bridging that dialogue. So we consider ourselves facilitators in that regard in bridging those discussions it all starts with dialogue. And of course, closely connected with dialogue is having trust-based relationships. You can't just show up and expect people to really express how they feel about issues, especially if they're sensitive. But by maintaining a presence in the communities where we work over time and being patient, Oftentimes, unintentionally, those conversations do rise to the surface, and then we can take actionable steps to start addressing some of those challenges. So for us, at the very core of what we do is this community-led, relationship-based collaborative process. And how hard is it to do that? I mean, what are some of the issues and challenges you have in establishing that trust with the community? There's the trust with the community, with the government, but there's also trusting you as an organization. I mean, the biggest challenge is being able to dedicate enough time and patience to that process. I think oftentimes, especially around here in the Valley, in the Sacred Valley of Peru, where there's a lot of tourism and a lot of people come from other countries and they fall in love either with the mountains or they saw a kid that, in a community that they want to support. And then within a couple of months, they've got an organization popped up and they're ready to just kind of throw solutions at challenges without really understanding them. That's a process that I don't really support because I've seen more times than not those projects fail. And at the end of the day, people are just kind of left hanging with not knowing what's going on. And, and frankly, with a poor perception of, you know, the possibilities of how a good social organization might run. And for us, the biggest challenge has been fighting against that dialogue and just taking the time to show up in communities with no real agenda oftentimes, not going to talk about projects or anything, but showing up to birthday parties or festivals or weddings or just work days in the cornfields, you know, just really kind of taking the time to have a presence. And whether it's in communities or not, I mean, that's kind of how relationship building goes. But it is challenging because that's certainly not something that foundations want to support. That's not the type of thing that you write into a grant so being able to support ourselves and our organization while we take the time to embrace those processes has been a challenge. And that's, that's why at about five years ago, we shifted to more of a social enterprise model where we could take control of um, our own revenue generating processes and therefore allowing us to move at the pace in which we feel is responsible. Yeah, you brought up a really good point. I think a lot of grants and grant writing, not only do they have specific foci that the grant funders want you to focus on, but they want you to have a solution. They want you to be solution focused. We're going to come in here with this solution to fix this problem, which I think is a problem in a lot of organizations where, you know, whether you're talking about like a nonprofit or a for-profit here in the United States, any leader coming in with a predetermined solution that hasn't talked to the employees, the sustainable change is not going to happen. We know that 
change failure and change management is a huge issue in the leadership field and uh, failed change is just rampant. And one of the things that we talk about in our program is that you can't do it without collaboration. You know, you're not going to get that sustainable change that you want. And I think that it's a huge stumbling block, I think, for a lot of organizations that rely on big funders. For sure. Yeah. And if you look at the various actors that often exist in that system, foundations, organizations, and let's say communities, going back to what we were talking about earlier, as it relates to dialogue, more times than not, the dialogue exists between the organization and the foundation. Right. And they're the ones having this sort of conversation. And then they're just coming up with the solutions, like you said, and even worse in a given timeline. Right. They're like, oh, here's the out, here's the here's the outcomes we're looking for. And let's make sure to achieve it within the next 16 months or whatever it might be. You know, and right. I don't think you need to be an expert to know that that's not realistic oftentimes, but it's the, it's, it's, the, it's the way that the dialogue often goes. And I think that's, like you said, kind of at the core of a lot of the challenges that we see that we see in the realm of in this case, the development or international development, at least. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk with Vanessa and Shika about your projects and what you're working on. And there's some dovetailing there that will connect with what we've already talked about. Shika, you want to talk about your project with Indian women? Yeah, I have a few reflections and then I'll discuss my project. Linia, when you were explaining that, that when you go into field and then they see you as an expert, that's that's one thing that scared me because I'm not the one who has all the information of what is going on in community because they are the one who are there, even though I'm an insider. The research that I'm doing on Dalit women, Dalits are not homogeneous group, they are heterogeneous. So even though I'm an insider, it's really difficult to call myself an expert. And the really important aspect that I learned in the podcast where I listen to every uh, single speaker and Adam and Joe, where they talk about relationship building. And that helps you to establish you in the field itself, where you cannot call yourself an expert, but you position yourself in a way where you at least know what is going on, at least know people you are doing research with. So establishing that relationship is really important. And I was actually recalling my experience in my earlier master's degree, where I was asked to do fieldwork in one month. And I was like, one month? I took that one month just to understand the participants. That's it. I spent time with them just to know them. I came back from my fieldwork after one month and I told my supervisor that I couldn't ask those questions right away. That what are your experiences without even knowing them? So... Yeah, I understand that relationship building, it's really important in participatory action research in comparison to other research paradigms that we have in qualitative inquiries. So my research is on experiences of Dalit women in higher education in India. This research I started in 2016. And that time, my aim was not to focus on Dalit women. My study focused on experiences of first-generation university students. There I explored in my data analysis that, oh, there is something that is severe here, the experiences of people coming from marginalized communities, especially women, their experiences, the challenges that they face is much severe in comparison to the other students. 
as a researcher i was able to understand my own experiences that as as a student i couldn't understand that time so i decided to take up this study for my doctoral thesis here i'm trying to understand again their experiences in higher education and not just in the terms of discrimination because when i see those experiences there are very less studies focusing on dalit women experiences particularly in higher education so when i see those experiences from my participants perspective and from my own perspective i see the experiences are much deeper than discrimination it's a question of dignity it's a question of self respect it's a question of independence that i want to ask in my own research and when i see my research in this par framework then i see that there is an iterative cycles like we look we think and then we act and i think i'm quoting cresswell here so i have looked for these experiences and i'm thinking through the process but how to act i think i'll i'll have to do my field work to figure that out the third phase could you define dilit women for the listener what that means to us how we would understand that in your terms yeah so basically india unfortunately have caste system and caste system earlier was divided into four varnas so brahmins vaishya shudras and kshatriyas so later on fifth varna was added which was called untouchables formerly known as untouchables dalits lies there and they are this heterogeneous group where people basically from scheduled caste scheduled tribes and other marginalized communities they are considered as dalits and okay. if we see the meaning of this word basically it's meaning broken okay so maybe fewer connections fewer experiences fewer privileges in terms of being able to access education in general and therefore access higher education to further understand what the dalit population might be that would reference things we would when we talk about underprivileged communities in the United States or we talk about the education achievement gap we often reference things related to race we reference things related to socioeconomic status and so do some of those things figure in as well yeah so if i further define dalit community they are mainly from lower income background and they are historically excluded from the mainstream society from education from temples and from main streets if a dalit person if an untouchable person i mean now we cannot use this word and this practice is abolished as per constitution but formally untouchables if they are walking on the street and upper caste person is coming from the opposite side they cannot cross the street they have to stand on the peripheral of the uh, street and they have to let upper caste cross first i was reading one uh, autobiography by a dalit author and she was mentioning her own experience where she was telling about this practice in her village where they have to dalit women has to touch the feet of upper caste man to say that we are at a mercy of you so basically considering them opposite of human beings yeah so it's even a deeper concept in indian culture which is vast i understand that yeah. uh, made up of many cultures but it's a much deeper complex concept than our marginalized communities here in the united states 
And so I guess my question is, as someone doing practitioner research, that presents extra challenges. Yeah. Uh, you talked about making those relationships, but there's going to be a reticence to make a relationship with you. And I don't know if, I don't know you, but it also could be some inherent reticence to make a relationship with them, if that makes sense. And so that's a power construct right there. And so can you talk about that for just a second and how you're navigating that or if you're thinking about navigating that if you're not collecting data yet? I know the pandemic has slowed down all of our research. I think during my MPhil when I collected data, it was really difficult to navigate that. Um, relationship building is really difficult. When the experiences are such that other person really doubt you as being a safe space. There, the communication helps. And especially being an insider, it gives me an edge to mm-hmm. enter. And when I share my own identity with them, and then it helps me to break that ice. They see it as, and I'm quoting one of my participants in my example, and she said, I'm comfortable talking to you because there is no one to listen to us. There is no one to listen to our experiences and challenges. I would really want to give my time and to tell you everything that we experience here. I think you've really illustrated deeply the challenges of creating those relationships and creating a space of trust. And it's a great responsibility to have that kind of trust and for people to put that kind of trust in you as the researcher. And while you don't see yourself as an expert, they still might, even though you feel that you're not. And that also can hamper the relationship. It just puts a great deal of responsibility on the shoulders of the practitioner researcher and working with communities, whether you're an insider or not, you know. So that's a great, great point. Vanessa, tell us about your work with curriculum and action research and what you're doing. So before I launch into any of that, I also had some thoughts. I've been scribbling frantically over here (laughs) and I can't stop thinking about my work in Hong Kong. I was a teacher at a secondary school for four years and thinking about this iterative process of action research and getting to know a community and becoming part of it slowly before you can even begin to think about a vision towards change. I was given the opportunity to redesign a classroom and it was going to be the English-centered classroom in this school. And I had to work with the students, the parents, the teachers, the administration to come up with a vision for this space for people to come in and not feel nervous about speaking English, like a place to enable conversation, to be friendly, to be welcoming. It took me two full years seeing that classroom evolve over time from kind of abandoned looking where it went from one student who was like nervously approaching me to talk to me to like 30 kids all wanting to just be in that space playing talking to each other they weren't always talking in English but at least I had achieved the community vibe that I was going for I keep coming back to that somehow for an inspiration towards where I'm going with this doctoral work understanding how difficult that process was over four years brings me back to this process of action research of how time consuming it is to really be part of a community and to grow a vision together collaboratively. One project that I'm involved in that I wanted to be involved in because I was part of the community already involves reimagining a Bachelor of Education program. And 
because I was heavily involved in student governance, because I've been at McGill from undergrad all the way through. I'm deeply connected to the people and ideas and processes that involves reimagining how change can look like as someone who is already part of a community of education. Another thing that's sticking out to me is this idea of messiness. And I think I would classify myself as like very messy, big ideas, trying to piece together as many things as possible and then narrowing and then opening up again. When you ask about my work, (laughs) it's kind of everywhere. I want to include student voice work. I want to include arts-based research. I want to include action research. I want to include design thinking and the role of practitioners and everybody kind of working together. And I also don't want to do anything because it's not about me. I'm working in a bunch of different things. And being part of this podcast has been really inspiring to just hear so many different perspectives and ideas within the field of action research. The conversations helping me narrow. It is the complexity of educational change in general that is fascinating to me. The interpersonal dynamics between different silos and different systems that make change happen ever so slowly. And when people ask me, you know, well, what do you want to change in education? It's not ever about that. It's just about painting a picture at a certain time and a certain place as to this is what's happening here at this intersection. And I'm just going to paint a picture of what's going on of here and now so that we have more of like a record of how change evolves and what people were thinking, what they were doing and what it felt like or whatever it is. So I never have an answer to that. And it kind of feels like a cop out when I'm like, well, it's, it's not up to me. And I'm not going to impose my ideas about change on a specific context that has a whole personality of its own. I mean, take a walk into any school and you'll feel their personalities differ <laughs> as soon as you enter the door. Like, you know that it's a different community. Action research for me in this moment is understanding how it allows for those differences to emerge and how you can despite the various approaches to action research and different understandings, you're able to, through time and relationships, embrace that as it comes out, as it is in the moment now. Connected so well to the ideas of relationships and time, which are often luxuries. They shouldn't be, but they're perceived of as luxuries in research and you know think about the vaccine development and how that's been rushed across the globe because we're in this pandemic you know but even in social behavioral research we qualify a project and we put the boundaries on it and i don't know what mcgill's doc program is like but i've taught in a number of doc programs and i try not to do this with my students but the program parameters are often like hurry up you've got 18 months you've got a you know, get in and out, narrow your focus. And, and I'm all for it. Once you start working on a project, you've got to narrow and you've got to put aside other things. But when you're searching, that takes time. When you're in the field with your participants, that takes time. You have to take time, develop those relationships to really get deeply into what the participant is trying to tell you. I think we celebrate doing things fast and that's not always the best way. I agree with you. And I think that generally speaking, our society has moved towards fast paced and superficial too. I mean, that's one of the problems with going fast. I always try and take a 
practical stance when it comes to these challenges that we're addressing and all like I can really relate to what Joe is saying for me being enrolled in a doc program for the past four years now it's really kind of illuminated what higher education has become and how it's such a grind you know to achieve tenure and to me that really I think the fact that you have to rush through research and you're not encouraged to really do it right and take your time. I mean, to me, that says a lot about the direction that higher education is headed in and where it's going. And I see it as problematic personally, because it is such a brain trust and there is so much potential, I think, in connecting that brain trust with, frankly, the world's most complex challenges. But as long as the system is rushing us through that, I think I see it as a barrier or an impediment to, you know, achieving or, or trying to address some of those challenges in a meaningful, sustainable way. So from a practical stance, I would love to hear from any of you about, if you agree, you know, what we can be doing systemically, right, to shift that dialogue so that we can be, at least in the realm of higher ed or academia, refocusing ourselves the importance of taking the time to do something right and validating that and rewarding it for good research, especially those that are aligned with social challenges. That's how I interpret what we're saying. Let's, so what? So what are we doing about it? I guess for me personally, it does kind of circle back to the action research podcast that we've been doing and my own research, I suppose, in such a way that just having that dialogue, getting that voice out there. When I defend my proposal in a couple of weeks, that's surely going to come up with my committee. And I'm prepared to push back and, and take a stance for, you know, taking the time to do something right and the value in the campus community partnership, which is essentially the realm in which my, my research. But for any of you that have an opinion, I'd love to hear it as well. I think it's a really important conversation, Adam. And I, I tell you that as someone who is older than all of you put together. It's one I've struggled with my whole career. And I was a late career person, got my doctorate at 40, so, or 40-ish, you know, so was back into that field, took longer than most of the other students that I started with because I had a family and, you know, commuted and just did not see that time was as important as universities seemed to put on it. And I went to a research one institution and my advisor was great and did not push me. She said, we'll move at whatever space you want to move at. But the university structures were very much the people who moved faster got extra grants and awards and money to keep their research going, right? And then I was in a tenure system and I left it because I felt like all my efforts were in sustaining this tenure system instead of sustaining practitioner scholarship and the things that meant so much to me. And even to the point where I felt like the university wanted at least an umbrella level, a directive over the kind of research that we would do. And I think that was probably about the last straw for me. And I've not been in a tenure system since 2012. And so, you know, I made some other choices that some people would look the side of their eyes and say, why did you do that? Working for a for-profit university and now I work for a nonprofit. But the whole idea was that I had the freedom to do different things, whether it was take a year to uh, write a book, you know, with a colleague or take a year to write a chapter for a handbook. If you're in a 
high stress research one institution writing handbook chapters and writing a research methods book are not at the top of the list you know they want you to write this this tier one research article for these very selective elitist publications and the more elitist it is meaning the more the, the lower their acceptance rate is the better that is for tenure and i just find that to be really problematic from my own soul and my own uh, philosophy of life and so i am where i am now and i have this freedom to do things like the podcast and write book chapters and i do another podcast specifically for doc students with two other colleagues and it's in support of the hidden curriculum of being a doctoral student and i work with applied doctorates because not that having a PhD is bad, I have one, but <laughs> but I think we're training up too many people for the academy and we need to train up leaders and practitioners in the real world who can be part of knowledge creation. So that's my take on it. And we do what we can, but I do think the tenure and promotion system and the academy in general still is that ivory tower picture. Interesting. Well, question for you then. So back when you were studying research methods, right, uh, would you say that the dialogue has shifted? So because I know in my research training, research methods training, even we were talking about terms like practitioner scholarship or scholar practitionership or action research and things like that, where, and of course, qualitative research. And I get the impression that there was a time where the, those weren't even topics discussed when we were learning about research methods. And I raised that point because maybe the dialogue is sh- shifting enough, you know, through coursework, through methods training, that there is at least another angle in which we can be viewing what constitutes research and how we go about doing it. Yeah, I think I was really lucky. And I say lucky with privilege all around. I was very privileged to be where I was because not only did I have an advisor who let me take the time I want, I had seven research methods classes because I just loved research methodology and I kept taking another one until she finally said, you need to get your proposal done and get out of here. <laughs> but, you know, I studied with Sunofki, who was one of the foundational authors of action research scholarship as method. I worked with some of those people, Elliot Eisner and Tom Barone and some of these big names in qualitative research, I just was really, really privileged. And action research was not looked down upon, at least in my academy, at least in the College of Education in the school that I attended. I don't know about other places in that school because it's a giant school, but I, I have heard those things. I've heard them in my own university. I've heard them in other universities of students, you know, where, well, that's not real research. I hear that frequently. And I, I'm old enough and strong enough where I just say, well, you want to have a conversation about the details or you just want to throw mud? I don't, you know, I don't really engage in those kind of conversations. I think that is fortunate. And hopefully just to bring it full circle. I mean, I guess for me, it is through that dialogue, right? One way or the other, just like we're, just like the way that we work in the field or purport to, you know, perhaps a shift in dialogue within higher education is the catalyst for a more systemic shift as it relates to research and the extent to which it's meaningful or not. Those conversations between qual and quant were happening. I came into the doc program at the end of those conversations and just found it to be really unproductive. And I had these conversations with my chair because she 
was training up during these conversations and the controversy, but quant is better and qual is, you know, lesser. And I just said, I don't understand why there's controversy because they're asking different questions. And she said, well, that's exactly it. And, and the dialogue continues, but there are always going to be people who want to be on top and, and say that one is better, that there has to be a binary. And, you know, I reject that binary. I, I reject that completely. It depends on the context and, and the problem that we're examining. And so many problems are contextual. And if we don't look at them from a contextual basis, I think we're falling short of really finding the problem that needs to be examined and the solution that needs to be tried. I agree. Because I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face is this kind of dualistic or binary thinking when context is really what matters. Because if you don't know what the context is, you won't really know what kind of approaches are worth trying. And if you don't have multiple approaches that you can try, then you won't know how to address the issues that have been identified in that context. And it's really interesting how challenging it is to have that discussion, but how important that discussion is. Because there are some people who really just, like you said, always want to be on top or always want to think in a certain way. That's a perfect place to end it.